standard issue for all women. Hello, Hannah here. Welcome to this episode of the Sunday Chops, one of two chops that we are serving up this weekend. The other one, which you should definitely get in your ears after you finish listening to this, is Mickey talking to playwright and lawyer Rachel Mariner about her new play, Recovering Misogynist. Put on to this one. In this episode of The Chops, I have a chat with the brilliant Kerry Hudson about her excellent new book, Lowborn, Growing Up, Getting Away and Returning to Britain's Poorest Towns, which, spoiler alert, I absolutely loved. Rather than tease what's coming up and what we talk about, I think I'm just going to tell you that it's excellent and leave you to it. But I do need to make one slight correction to something that I say in it, which is that I talk about James Blunt going to Eton when, in fact, James Blunt went to Harrow. Now, that's a distinction that matters not much to most of us, which kind of proves the point, I think. But for the sake of accuracy, to repeat, James Blunt did not go to Eton. He went to Harrow. OK, enjoy this, Chops. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday. Get in touch if you want to chat about growing up working class, where I am at that Dunleavy. Until next time. Hi, Hannah here. I'm joined on the phone, actually, by the magic of Zoom, from Prague, by Kerry Hudson, author of Lowborn, Growing Up, Getting Away and Returning to Britain's Poorest Towns, which I finished reading yesterday and I absolutely loved. Welcome to Standard Issue, Kerry. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. This is the second time this week that I've told someone that they write about a serious issue with a light touch, but it doesn't make it any less true and it doesn't make it any less impressive this was a hard book for you to write I know that because you actually say so in it and I also know it because when I was sitting planning this interview I thought what stories might I tell you about my childhood that I would be happy to put into the world that said having read it I feel like you did it for exactly the right reason which feel free to correct me but I got the feeling you wrote this book for yourself am I right in saying that (laughs) (laughs) um yeah i keep forgetting because we're on zoom that this is an audio (laughs) this is an audio medium and i can't just nod (laughs) i mean it was for two reasons really so first of all when i decided to write it brexit had just happened and the tories were making this like terrible suite of austerity measures and i saw the narrative around poverty and people who are poorer become more and more and more and more divisive and I even kind of saw that in quite liberal middle-class friends I saw that sort of attitude kind of try start to seep in that idea that poor people bring it on themselves you know the age-old narrative and so I was trying to work out how to counter that and was really frustrated and one of the ways that I knew I could was by talking about my own lived experience by saying from the small platform that I have like this happened to me and these are all the reasons it happens and this is how damaging it is. And then the second reason is because, you know, I'd written two novels by then. They'd been fairly successful. I was in a really nice relationship. But I definitely knew that I had lots that was unresolved. And even though it seems mad and it maybe was a little <laughs> bit mad, writing is just kind of my, my model of understanding things. So it made sense to kind of put those two things together and try and make some sort of difference to people's opinions while also really doing that sort of explorative work myself as well. I think that's really interesting and particularly your point about Brexit so I'd like to come back to that but just for the sake of people who haven't read Lowborn, 
Could you just maybe distill into a couple of sentences for us? I would do it, but I always worry about what people do and don't want to give away about what's in their book. So maybe if you could do that. Essentially, it's it's an exploration of what it means to grow up. I mean, I, I, I used to use the word working class, but I'm really aware that like working class is such a broad term now for so many people that even though I consider myself working class, it's not so much about the working class experience as to what it is to grow up in poverty or or to be poor so it's partly an exploration of what that's like why that happens and the long-term consequences of that both for the individual and for sort of then their ability to function in society so I tackled it by making half of the book very personal like a a deeply (laughs) far too (laughs) probably raw personal memoir and then the other half is me actually returning to the, the times that I grew up in which were all really deprived except for one actually Canterbury but really deprived towns but right across the UK so from Aberdeen all the way down to Norfolk which meant that I felt like I was getting sort of a a cross-section like by no no means like sort of scientifically (laughs) bankable but somewhat a cross-section of what it means to grow up in those towns now to see whether things had gotten better or worse and if they had got worse which often they had unfortunately why there had been no progress in three decades. I found the section about Yarmouth particularly fascinating. Great Yarmouth, that is, for people who don't live near enough. Yarmouth is a place I am utterly fascinated by. We went there on holiday when we were younger. And now I live in Cambridge and you can drive there in an hour and a half. So when I go to the seaside, which I probably will in a couple of weekends time because it's hot, I always generally go to Yarmouth. I can't put my finger on what it is that I find so fascinating about it. It's this odd mix of fallen splendour, you know, that beautiful glass building that's just rotting with this absolutely just quite literally nailed on in some places just tat the new economy Yarmouth represents that sort of place that was once great and could maybe be great again having read your book I think the statement Yarmouth could be great again is perhaps wildly optimistic I mean it's it's hard because because actually I have that same fascination you know like I think it's it's quite beautiful I definitely met people who were like we were like, there's so much going for it. You know, we could make this the next Margate. And I guess that there has been that sort of rejuvenation in some seaside towns. I think probably the issue is that Yarmouth has always had, when I lived there, and still has enormous social problems, enormous structural, systemic, like really, really big problems, which means that whatever they try to do is is inevitably not going to go that well because probably, I don't know the statistics, but... I'd imagine at least more than half of their population is really struggling on a day-to-day mm-hmm. basis. Mental health yeah. or financial issues or um, medical issues that are unresolved because they haven't been able to access or diagnose them properly. And housing issues and all sorts mm-hmm. of things, all the, the sort of gamut and often the intersection of those things. So how do you move a, a, a whole community forward when you disenfranchise half or two-thirds of your community. Yeah, I think it was difficult as well. Is, um, do you know Sadie Hasler? She's a playwright. She's from South End, And she talks a- about how there is a really, really fine line between saying you're improving an area and then what you're actually doing is gentrifying it. So actually life gets no better for the community that are there. It just, houses become more expensive and rent goes up. I have to say there were some bits in here that I, I mean, I grew up working class as people on the podcast know and there's some bits here that I I think you forget a little bit the small details and there are two points in particular the brown carpets 
which I just <laughs> and the wood chip they, they usually went together no? Brand carpet and wood chip. absolutely yeah. I, I once decided to take wood chip off my own bedroom wall because I hated it so much and my dad had said it was too much like hard work to take it down he was just going to paint over it and I was like no and I did it myself I was probably about 10 with like a paint scraper and it took absolutely ages and it looked like shit and in the end, my dad just put more wood chip on top of it, which I was livid with him for, and then painted it. National Express coaches are the other one. And you're right. There's a bit you say in this about how I now judge the idea of being on a coach. I now consider myself above a coach journey. I, I will pay to go on a chain. I'm not getting on a coach. I spend way too much time on coaches in my life. Yeah, it's funny because I, I took a lot of coaches for the research and I did that... Um, largely because um, I'm a writer and I don't have a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> Travelling in the UK is staggeringly expensive. Yeah. So I did it, but actually, like, it was really interesting, I think, like, me realising how how snobbish the idea was, you know? Like, it's okay to take a picture of your can of gin and tonic and a sandwich on a train and be like, off yeah. to Bradford. But if you do that on a coach, then there's all sorts of sort of associations with that. So I find that I find that fascinating. Um, and loads of those things that I, I guess, you know, a lot of the book is about the fact that I still feel the ramifications very much of all sorts of aspects of my childhood. But I don't really I don't really belong in that world anymore. And, you know, and I'm very, very far removed from it as well. You know, I, w- I will also take a train rather yeah. than a coach. I mean, largely because I vomit everywhere if I take a coach. But, um, but, um, but, you know, so I think a lot of the book was exploring like, that idea of, of losing a lot of your identity when you leave your working class background. Yeah. If you leave your community and you go to another community that you also don't fit in, in which I definitely have never done in sort of the middle class literary world, then then where are you? You know, you're sort of in that, that hinterland, which is, as I say in the book, neither here nor there. Mm. Another reason I was totally delighted with this book, I have to say, is that I have noticed in recent years, and it is specifically in recent years, that the middle class in this country, the the well-meaning liberal middle class in this country has come to the erroneous conclusion that it has any fucking idea what it's like to grow up working class. I mean, a little trip on Twitter and you will see people talking about the working classes, almost like a Dickensian sentimentalised idea. But then the minute the red wall goes blue, absolute anger and rage at like the racist, you know, just horrible working classes, neither of which I think are true at all. So I am very interested in how you feel that class politics have moved on since Brexit. I mean, as I said, Brexit was like a fairly big motivation for writing this book, because what I saw, even from my really liberal friends, like Guardian readers, and they choose Freedom First Meats, and they're all about their recycling and their, you know, slow fashion, and are usually very ethical people, just like completely aligned themselves with a view that it was the idiot working classes that caused Brexit. You know, like, and it was almost like this sort of, this stifled politeness to like not slag off working class people while the belief was still very much there, but hidden, was Mm. suddenly given, given an excuse to come out. I saw it with people who I would never have expected it from. Yeah. And so I really want to challenge that. And I totally agree with you. Another thing. So when I was writing the book, I was also writing column for the now sadly departed Fool magazine. And I wrote a lot about how when I was trying to navigate this sort of the thorny issue of what the working classes is. And what I realized was that 
people either want to romanticize them, either, you know, they want it to be a Ken Loach film or they yeah. want them to be a Sun headline. And those are your choices. Yeah. <laughs> no one would ever ask a middle class person to to put themselves into such a, a narrow sort of bracket. The working class experience is broad and contains multitudes. And for all the, the sort of difficulty and trauma that I went through, there are many other working class people who said that they had a wonderful upbringing, you know? And so I think it's, for me, for me, the book became much less about sort of describing the working class experience, whatever that means, mm. and more about the the consequences of growing up in extreme poverty and extreme disadvantage in the UK, which I think is is a different sort of issue, you know? I try quite hard, because I work in the arts and I work in the media, so I work predominantly with middle-class people. I know a lot of them think I've got a chip on my shoulder. And I will periodically tell stories that I think are there designed to try to, you know, wake up. <laughs> it's like being poor at university is not the same as coming from a family where generations of people have been poor. The difference between saying, I can't ring my mum to ask for money, meaning I don't want to demean myself or I don't want to owe her something, and I can't ring my mum and ask her for money because she just won't fucking have it. I always tell this story about how, when I was younger, I can remember my, my dad was working away, which he like he worked in buildings, so in the 80s he was away a lot. And he was working away, and our next-door neighbours, who I thought were grown-ups, but now when I think about it, they were probably teenagers, 18, 19, they had a baby. He came round to see when my dad was coming home because his mum was in hospital, and he wondered if he could borrow my dad's van to drive to hospital to visit his mum. And my mum said, he's not coming home tonight. And they were like, oh, how are we going to, like, get to the hospital to see his mum, who was really poorly? And my mum didn't have the money to lend them for... I mean, there there wasn't a train station. Buses stopped running, like, at six o'clock at night. So he walked. And he walked 12 miles to go to hospital to visit his mum because he thought she was dying. And I always think that's, for me, that's the story that says poverty. It's not, I'll put it on my credit card and worry how I'm going to pay it tomorrow. I'll ring up one of my many friends with cars who can come and drive me there. It's the only way I'm going to get there is if I actually have to do the walk myself it's really hard to explain to people who've never been through it which is again one of the reasons why i thought i want to write the book what it is like to live in not just precarity for a week either or for a few months you know or like you know feel like your for instance your accommodation situation's sketchy and where you're going to live it's not about those tiny moments of risk it's about literally year on year on year never having a spare penny never having enough for any emergency that comes up never having even enough for your basic needs and also knowing that there's no real way out of that poverty trap mm. that actually that there are no it's not like you know god this is this has been a rough year but next year will get better it's actually like certainly like for someone like my mum who's a single parent with mental health problems who I, I just don't believe could work you know even if she really really wanted to it's about her literally looking at years and years and years ahead of having to live with that level of fear and instability. And that is, you know, I mean, of course, that's like enormously damaging to anyone, let alone whole communities who live like that. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about alcohol because my dad was an alcoholic and actually my family, much like your family, riddled, my family is riddled with alcoholism I drank very heavily in my youth as did you now you and I are twice as likely to be an alcoholic as somebody else because our parents are alcoholic although there is still no 
evidence as to whether that is nature or nurture, whether we've got some gene in us that predisposes to it, or is it because we grew up surrounded by people who portrayed alcohol as the answer to all of life's problems? Can I ask you what your opinion is on that? Maybe a bit of both. That's what I often think, you know, like a bit of nature and a bit of nurture. Um, You might remember at the very beginning of the book, I talk about the adverse childhood experiences scores and how the trauma you experience definitely impacts, you know, literally how many physical illnesses you're going to get. Your, of course, your propensity for mental health problems, but also for physical problems in later life. So I'm sure it's a bit of both. You know, both my parents drank really heavily and my dad was a self-avowed alcoholic. As were as as was my whole family as well. I'd say riddled is, is pretty good or pickled, you know, my whole uh, family yeah. was, was preserved and yeah, riddled sounds like people. they all had sexually transmitted diseases. Um, <laughs> but yeah, pickled, they, they were all and so um and but I think, you know, again we're talking about that sort of that cycle of hopelessness, mm. you know. When I was a teen, even though I was actually I was really quite academic considering how many schools I'd had and really ambitious, like I knew I wanted better things for myself. The situation often on a day-to-day felt so hopeless that, of course, you're just going to drink. Drinking's, you know, drinking is fun and it mm. feels good. And it's an alleviation for me as well, I think, of a lot of undiagnosed mental health issues I was having at the time. And um, it was like a, a pressure valve. I do think I will say that, like, I think probably until like my late, my late 20s, I probably, I wouldn't say I was ever, I never really had an addiction problem, I think, but I definitely had a sort of, very unhealthy relationship with alcohol for sure and then I think I, I eventually really reconciled myself with lots of other things in my life that helped me drink less essentially but I mean I talk a lot I think about that sort of the generational passing down of things which yeah. I saw not just with alcoholism but with mental health and with relationships and with self-esteem and you know sort of attitudes towards things that I saw literally passed down from great grandmother to grandmother to mother to daughter. I am um, obviously pregnant at the moment, <laughs> and yes, <laughs> and much of my thoughts for the last sort of seven months have been around how you avoid that, like how you how you break that cycle and and be aware of how easy it is to do that, how those shadows can just pass pass down generations. What is it that has made you? and I and Mickey who also comes from a working class background what makes us now um, I use this in heavy heavy sarcastic quotes not like them Uh, yes I mean honestly in in my I can only speak for myself you know like everyone has different things that that I think Mm. help get them out of a difficult situation for me honestly like pure arbitrary luck I say in the book like and I was really clear I did over 100 events <laughs> last year around the UK and everyone was like hey did you do it though yeah and I was like it was it was just like there's no social mobility story here no, I agree. and the last thing I want to be is like sort of held up as sort of the poster girl for like look yeah. she pulled herself up her bootstraps because that's not what happened actually what happened was I got really really lucky I had access to libraries which made a huge difference obviously they'd been massively eroded under the Tory government I had a few really good teachers who instilled in me the belief that I actually might be worth more than what all of society was telling Mm. me and then in my early 20s I met a lovely partner who came from a much more stable uh, background than mine and uh, and she you know really helped me to 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 help me through a lot of the issues that I was having in my 20s 
which enabled me to, to sort of move forward with my life and have self-belief and, yeah. you know, exposed me to the idea that I could aspire to things and actually might deserve them. Yeah. The knowledge of possibility. I actually wrote something about this when uh, James Blunt, a couple of years ago, when James Blunt was saying that uh, going to eat and hadn't helped his career and it annoyed him oh. with people. Yeah. I think for me, my dad was absolutely the smartest person I've ever met in my life. And I live in Cambridge. No two ways about it. But he left school when he was 14. And he was so angry that he decided to live his education vicariously through me as the, as the brightest of his children. So I was made to do the things that my dad wanted to do, which in many ways, built me a ladder. For example, my dad desperately wanted me to learn to type because he was like, then you'll always be able to get a job in an office and that'll be a good job. You won't have to go to a shop. You'll be able to get a job in an office. And I was horrified at the idea that I might get a job in an office, but I did become a journalist. So in many ways, he was absolutely 100% correct. Being able to type was really, really useful for a future (laughs) career. So I think in many ways, it was my dad's ambition and I was very lucky like that because lots of lots of kids don't have parents who who want them to get an education or who have hopes for them or or believe or that it's just possible. believe they're going to get out of it. Mm. I am um, when I was uh, six, I wrote to Jim will fix it, and my wish was to be a waitress for the day. <laughs> I mean, that's where Tokyo. That's like how small your aspirations yeah. are. I have about right, seventeen different emotions about that, and only about two of them <laughs> are about Jim will fix it. Um. <laughs> but I think, yeah, I mean, the, the idea that, like, and also, you know, like, I think, um, it, like, aspiration is like one thing, but there's also the idea of entitlement, and I yeah. think people who come from certain sorts of homes just think they're entitled to this stuff. I, I have never. I don't have that. I still don't have it. Like, you know, I've, I've written three books now. All have been fairly successful. And I will never stop, like, basically thanking God every yeah. single day that I've been given the opportunity to do it. But I know many people who'd say, well, look, you know, you're definitely entitled to sort of take up this space now. Um, and I really think that's something that comes from your upbringing. I mean, that's certainly my feeling from, from what I've observed. I also briefly wanted to talk to you about travel because you did something that I did, which is you went traveling a lot. And I initially wrote down as a question, do you think you were running to something or running away from it? But you actually answered that question about two pages after I wrote it down. But I think it is it is quite common. I remember when I read Nick Frost's autobiography, Nick Frost grew up in a working class family. His mum was an alcoholic. As the minute he could, he left the country and went abroad. And I thought there's got to be something in it and I sat and thought about it for me then and I was thinking about I don't know if you watch Mad Men but there's a bit where one of Don's girlfriends says to him you only like the start of stuff and I thought oh that's it that's what traveling was to me that I didn't ever have to reveal that much about myself or if I did accidentally reveal too much about myself I was never going to see that person again and so it was fine and so there was an element of anonymity in travel which I found really thrilling so (laughs) Now you've worked that out, how do you feel about travel in in itself? Do you feel different about travel? Are you able to sort of enjoy it on a different level? Does that make sense? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I really, I really, like, part of it was that I always, if travel feels like a miracle, if you've grown up believing that your horizons are so small, you're going to end up working in Iceland, the freezer shop, not the country, (laughs) you know, in your local town, then, then um, other, other refrigerator supermarkets are available. Um, then like travel feels like a miracle, right? That you can, I wrote yeah. something recently about how after reading On the Road as a teen, I finally managed to get to San Francisco to go to the City Lights bookshop and how 
I realised that if I could make that journey from a council estate in Great Yarmouth to a place I'd only read about in a book, then I could really do anything. So I think the, the anonymity is a huge thing, like massive, I think, for me. And so I've always focused on big cities, so Bangkok or Hanoi or Buenos Aires. And I'm sure that's because I love the anonymity that a city can yeah. offer. And I also think you just you leave the class structure, right? Like nobody can judge you by how you speak. Yeah. Um, they can't judge you by your accents. A lot of the signifiers are different for, for sort of working class or, or non-working class people. And so I think you leave like a structure where, I mean, the thing that I always say is that if I write about it in the book, when I go to any sort of event, people say, where's that accent from? Yeah. Um, and they're not asking me, they're definitely asking me where I'm from. What they're saying is, where do you fit in my idea of social hierarchy? Because, because I can't place it right now. You know, in the same way that, thank God, no one's asked me this for a few years because I don't tolerate it anymore. But people saying, what school did you go to yeah. in, in their adulthood, you know? And you you lose a lot of that when you're when you're traveling. You know, you become sort of like a sort of blank slate and the, the whole place is a blank slate. I live in Prague now and I love being here. Like, I love it. I feel free of a lot of a lot of the stuff that I still felt like I was fighting a lot in the UK, but also mentally healthy enough to keep to keep fighting the stuff in the UK that I feel very offended by. So I feel like here I've got the best of both worlds almost. That, that's funny that thing you say about schools because a couple of weeks ago I saw on my corner of Twitter, which is arts journalism Twitter, this thing where people were saying, "Who's the most famous person that went to your school?" And everyone was going, oh, so-and-so went to mine and so-and-so went to mine. And I looked and the only two notable people listed in my school that I went to kicked another boy to death. I don't know why I'm laughing. And they're the only two people listed in the notable section of my school. And I was like, fuck, I might ask them if they want to put me on there. I'm not that famous, but it'll up the reputation, surely. Yeah, I find I find, I find that baffling like, that, that people in adulthood still. But it, it just goes to show, I think, how like how absolutely deep and entrenched that idea of class and privileges. Yeah, absolutely, especially in those who have it. You know, that of course they don't want to give up that sense of privilege or entitlement. Of course, they're going to hold it close to them. I think privilege is such an interesting word because a, a lot of stuff now, a lot of chat about white privilege, a lot of chat about straight privilege, cis privilege, and. I do see, again, a lot of well-meaning liberals saying, you know, why can't people just get this, that white privilege is a thing? And then two tweets down later, they're talking about, you know, when they were living in poverty and what they mean is when they were at university. And I think you have to accept your privilege. and It, it will help other people accept their privilege. Such a flash word, I think. And by flash, I mean it just creates this bang in you. It makes people just go, what? I've got privilege, but no, yes. but no, middle class people are amongst the worst for doing that, I think. As I say in the book, it's very hard to, if you if you look at someone like me, I sometimes say that being working class or coming from a poorer background and achieving anything in your life is like Fred and Ginger, like Ginger did everything that Fred did, but backwards and heels. Yeah. And, um, and of course, people don't want to hear that. They don't want to feel like much of what they achieved is because actually they were part of an inherently yeah. unequal structure but that is just the truth so in the same way that, that I think lots of us are having to reconcile ourselves with the idea of white privilege and the the many advantages that gives us mm-hmm. completely unfairly then then people really need to start digging down into that but it's really hard because again it's, it's so 
historic it's so entrenched I yeah think. have you had many people be in touch with you and um, if you have how's that been sounds like a loaded question but I only say that because when I started talking about my dad's alcoholism I got a massive flood of people who wanted to talk to me about it and I suddenly realized I was exactly the wrong person for them to get in contact with <laughs> because the way my dad was made me a way that I can cope with it and the way I cope with it is not necessarily the way that I would advise other people to cope with it if that makes sense I'd have said well you've got to toughen up for one thing which isn't I think the sort of advice that people are reaching out for when they do maybe maybe not yeah fuck up yeah. <laughs> is your auto reply yeah. um, I actually I had so I started when I was writing the book I was writing a series a monthly series of columns for the pool yeah. um, and that was really my first foray into it before that I'd been writing fiction albeit you know fiction based in my my sort of the communities that I'd grown up in and so that was like my first exposure to women getting in touch with me and responding to very personal things that I was putting out there and it was so helpful because it basically allowed me to expose myself gradually as like a sort of a gentle exposure test to what it was going to feel like and then also get the reward of all these often they didn't even come for anything you know they came to tell me that like they'd been with a partner for four years and they'd never told them about their childhood or they grew up poor too and they were just so glad to see it in Mm. you know on the pages of a, a magazine like The Pool which I think you know, had lots of amazing content that was also, you know, also had like £200 pashminas sometimes yeah. advertised. Or they just wanted to say say thank you because the things that I voiced were things that resonated with them and it made them feel less alone. And then when the book came out, I got hundreds, hundreds of messages from people like in all the forms of social media. But very rarely did they, were they asked me for anything from me. Usually it was just like a sort of, it's it's very lonely and alienating, I think, if you left that community and you don't really talk about it because there's so much stigma attached to it or you spend a lot of your time feeling like you're sort of playing a part that isn't how you grew up then I think it's very valuable to to meet other people who feel the same. I was very interested as well because again I think at the moment we live in in a culture that somehow even if we're not living in a victim culture certainly the conversation is that we are living in a victim culture. And I think it's really interesting and possibly because you come from a working class background and it's a very working class thing to do, is that you don't want sympathy in this book. You don't ask for pity. It was what it was. And I suppose the only request is that it's not like that for other people in the future. I can't think of anything worse than people being like, you know, don't be nice to me. be like, you're so brave. (laughs) Well, not really. I mean, I think... Part of that is because I have to say that I, you know, I do come from a position of privilege now, you know, if yeah. we're talking about that word, like I have a small platform, I just about make enough to, to live certainly like more comfortably than I ever imagined yeah. living when I was growing up. I have a lovely relationship. I was able to address my mental health troubles. The idea that I should have any sympathy when there are people struggling through this on a daily basis. Yeah seems mad to me so really the book is more about saying what I really and I think I hope I I tried a very fine line between not being too finger pointing and accusatory because I get it you know you like we grew up in these structures and they're hard to address and it's mm. it's a lot for people to absorb so I hope what I was trying to do was in as you say like quite a quite a light way you know like quite a gentle way say look, this is happening in the next street to you, so so what are you going to do about it, yeah, you know? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think to some some extent I, I, I succeeded in that. I've definitely had a message from a Tory MP who said it made him think. Wow. <laughs> Wonders will never cease. 
and um, and I had so it was, it was interesting that my readers actually came from like right across the spectrum of, yeah. of sort of class and economy, and those who did come from sort of more privileged places were often said this has made me reassess sort of how I view this or has really made me look at what I do on a day-to-day basis so hopefully to some extent it did its job you know so Lowborn out now all good bookshops in audiobook as well I narrated it myself oh did you yeah yeah so it's that's a great (laughs) idea to know me I have to say I did wonder the whole way I do wonder what her accent is like because (laughs) you've moved around so much so yeah that would answer that question for all readers <laughs> thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute delight. Oh, no, thank you so much. What a lovely interview, and thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Standard issue for all women.